KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, we'll celebrate Bob Dylan's 80th birthday. It's this week with Ella Taylor by watching Don't Look Back, the wonderful 1967 documentary by D.A. Pennybaker about Dylan's 1965 tour of England. That's the film that opens with the now iconic video with the music of subterranean homesick blues and Bob in the alley dropping the big cards with the lyrics on them. This is the song that begins, Johnny's in the basement mixing up the medicine a song that's always had a special meaning for me. And later in the show, as many Democrats urge Joe Biden to take steps towards self-determination for Palestinians, Adam Schatz will recall the life and work of Edward Said, the most prominent voice of Palestinians in America until his death in 2003. But first, our Washington update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. We reached him today at home in our nation's capital. Hi, Harold. Hi, John. Well, it looks like a group of moderate Republicans led by Mitt Romney is going to offer Biden a bipartisan compromise on infrastructure. Instead of his, whatever it was, $3 trillion, they've been talking about perhaps one trillion that would fund traditional roads and bridges and not much else, leaving out all his stuff on a Green New Deal. And there are also some moderate Democrats, as they call themselves, who are talking about some similar kind of bipartisan deal. Will Biden listen to the siren song of bipartisanship and abandon his progressive agenda here? Well, that's a good question. Uh, the, the bill in question is the first of the two different major bills that uh, Biden has introduced. It's the one labeled infrastructure, which does include uh, in its current form uh, a, a great deal of uh, support for uh, uh, green uh, energy, for green auto manufacturing uh, and and such. Uh, I think 400 billion is the uh, uh, is the figure there. That's what the Republicans would cut. And there's also money in it for human uh, services, things, childcare and such, which some of these so-called moderate Democrats want to shift over to Biden's second big bill, uh, which, which concerns itself with uh, education and, and and such as that. I, I think the funding issue is actually a, a very weird feature of this dis discussion. Uh, this particular bill, Biden said he wanted to uh, fund these, these investments by raising the corporate tax. And what the moderates seem to be proposing in the grand tradition of uh, the gas tax, which supposedly goes to support the highway fund, is increasing user fees, such as the gas tax, to fund it, which means that Biden is, in, in this and his other bill, saying, okay, uh, you know, we need to make these investments, and the rich and or corporations can afford to make it. And the moderate position is to do that for which Democrats and Republicans have been historically pilloried by voters, which is <laughs> yes. to say, uh, making them uh, pay for this. Why that is appealing to people like Joe Manchin, who comes from a state where 
the, the number of rich people is historically low, and the number of people who would be socked by an increase in something like the gas tax is, is historically high, uh, is a mystery to me. And I, I would think Biden, to the extent that he really wants to fund it the way he said, and that would also entail keeping his very clear promise made many times during his presidential campaign that no one who makes under $400,000 a year will have their taxes raised. I think you know, anything that's funded the way the moderates are talking would simply have to be a non-starter for Biden. On the other hand, Joe Biden's life for the last 40 or 50 years has been in pursuit of bipartisanship. This has been his pride and joy. It's only in the last few months that he's taken steps away from that. And so we wonder, will, you know, will the real Joe Biden stand up? Well, uh, a, a, a good quiz show reference there. Yes, there there are conflicting parts of who Joe Biden Joe Biden is, and we will see what emerges. But I really don't think he can go against his pledge about no one whose uh, income is below four hundred thousand dollars will have their taxes raised. He's already reduced the amount of this infrastructure bill from two point three trillion to one point seven trillion, uh, and some of that, as I said, is shifting over to the human infrastructure, for lack of a better term, bill it, is the other uh, priority they are pushing right now. But, you know, really the question ultimately and alas is if he, if he holds out for the stronger proposal and the way he wants to fund it, how would that play, never mind the Republicans, how would that play with Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema and folks like that. There aren't a lot of folks like that in the Democratic caucus, but you have to have everyone in the Democratic caucus to get it through under reconciliation. And what about prescription drug prices? We hear thunder thunder rumbling in the distance on that one too. Well, here, you know, the Biden administration is holding its fire. They haven't uh, introduced anything yet, though in his sort of State of the Union address, his speech to Congress, he did say that something would come on that. I think uh, if I can read the tea leaves here, I think the strategy is to get these first two big bills passed and then go to prescription drug prices because he doesn't want, you know, the pharmaceutical industry and the hospital industry to come out against him now. Plus which that's not a bad fight to have once the midterm elections approach. You can be the good guy and uh, the legislators who are against it, uh, who will be overwhelmingly Republican, would be the bad guys. But here's, a, here's, a, here's the problem. In the House, there are still some Democrats who aren't really on board with the uh, uh, reducing the price of prescription drugs as, been, as it has been done in a bill the House passed last year, uh, though it was, wasn't going anywhere. Uh, which was a you know uh, biting some but not all of that apple. Now this is really popular not just on the left of the party. Some of the Democratic uh, members of Congress who come from the most conservative districts and and promote themselves that way, like Connor Lamb from just outside Pittsburgh, really say we have to do this now. It's an odd collection of Democrats who may be getting you know more money than is usually the case from. The pharmaceutical industry. I'm not sure. We have to. We have to look into that. Who are now saying, "Well, we're not entirely sure about this." So you know, uh, but it, it, it's an issue that polls so well, and that the Democrats can use so effectively against the Republicans 
that this is just as mind boggling as the notion of funding the infrastructure bill by raising people's gas tax as opposed to raising the corporate tax. A lot of counterintuitive idiocy going on in selective parts of the Democratic congressional delegations. And my, my, my what about list, what aboutism, they call this. What about police reform? This week, of course, is the anniversary of the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Members of George Floyd's family were in Washington on Tuesday meeting with Joe Biden and Kamala Harris at the White House. Uh, Biden had pledged to get through Congress by this week the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act that would ban the use of chokeholds, impose restrictions on deadly force, make it easier to prosecute police officers for wrongdoing. Is this going to get through Congress ever? Well, the holdup here, there's a ongoing protracted negotiations be between progressive uh, Democrats in the House, uh, disproportionately and rightly so, African-American, led by LA's own Karen Bass, who has a stellar history as a community activist in South Central before she was an elected official dealing with the good old LAPD and its Daryl Gates years and such. And uh, the one uh, African-American Republican Senator, Tony Scott of uh, South Carolina. And the issue in contention appears to be getting rid of the qualified immunity that the courts have bestowed upon cops, which, which means they can't be uh, uh, individually held responsible or sued for a violation of, you know, basic uh, human rights when people get clobbered, as they frequently do, uh, for uh, driving while black or walking while black or breathing while black or <laughs> yes. any one of those things uh, for so someone who's not black and for, which, for whom there's absolutely no justification either. So uh, uh, I don't know where those negotiations are at. There's no question that some of the people, certainly on, on the House side, like Karen Bass, have been working on scaling back uh, police abuse uh, for most of her professional life, actually. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know if they're at loggerheads with Senator Scott. Uh, you know, Tim Scott remains to be seen. So we've said, what about infrastructure? What about prescription drugs? What about police reform? There's one other what about what about the ambassadorship to India? Yeah, well, the Associated Press reported today uh, something that has been speculated in the press for quite some time. It's now been given sort of the authority of the AP that, well, we've, this is going to happen, that uh, President Biden will appoint Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti. You uh, said will appoint, will, will appoint. appoint. Yeah, that's, that's, what, that's what they said. You know, they, and they have a caveat there that, well, things can always change, but they say will appoint, the decision has been made to appoint Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti to be the U.S. ambassador to India. The thought process here is, is a little mysterious to me, but that may just be because there are things I don't know about. I mean, one of the things that occurred to me was that Eric Garcetti is basically ethnically an Italian, Mexican, Ashkenazic Jew, and who better to deal with uh, India's historic Hindu-Muslim uh, tensions than an Italian-Mexican-Ashkenazi. <laughs> I think you put your finger on the key, yeah, yeah, the key yeah. feature there. So everything we've talked about here is, is very familiar. 
Republicans screwing things up on infrastructure, on prescription drugs, on police reform. But you have discovered some news this week that is truly new, something new under the sun. Tell us. Yeah. Um, when, when trade complaints have arisen as a result of the trade deals the United States has uh, formulated and entered into, over the last 30 years, like NAFTA and uh, numerous others, uh, presidential administrations of both parties have really not been at the forefront of advocating for American workers. But on May 13, something new happened, which was to say the United States trade representative actually initiated a complaint even before what usually had been the case, which was an affected union, which was seeing the, their job shipped overseas and violations of human rights and labor law in the places and in the very factories where those jobs were shipped, they had to bring their complaints to the United States trade representative. The trade representative had to decide if it was worthwhile uh, filing. They certainly didn't always do that. This was the first time, and it re, it, it's a reflection of the very good appointments that President Biden has made on, in the in this area. This is the first time that the government itself initiated a complaint. Uh, we'll see where Mexico goes on this. It's not a guarantee that this story will have a happy ending, but it is a happy beginning uh, for trade enforcement in the Biden administration. And, you know, any previous administration, meaning Clinton, George W. Bush, or Obama, the trade reps could have initiated many of these cases themselves. They never did. So this is really new stuff. Last but not least, I need to ask you about Republican member of Congress, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who has compared virus mask mandates to Nazi policy toward the Jews. She said that Nancy Pelosi's insistence that lawmakers get vaccinated before the House ends its mask mandate, she said that's like the way Jews were, quote, put in trains and taken to gas chambers in Nazi Germany. She also said that universities barring unvaccinated students from attending classes in person were treating them the way Nazis treated Jews. Now, this is the big news today, House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy has issued a statement declaring, and I quote, Marjorie is wrong, close quote. Errol, I've never asked you this question before, but do you agree with Kevin McCarthy on this? Uh, I do, I do. And it suggests uh, for the people who uh, have said that he has no backbone and, uh, <laughs> and you know, diminished cranial capacity, that he, he, it's not a backbone issue. It's an easy political thing to do. Uh, but, you know, his cranial capacity clearly uh, exceeds that of utter idiocy. Uh, so, uh, you know, it was a no-brainer for Republicans to condemn. Uh, however, however, yeah. there's a however here. It did take Kevin McCarthy a week to come to the conclusion that Marjorie Taylor Greene was wrong. How do you explain this slow response? Maybe he was studying up on the history of the Holocaust? Uh, I think that's improbable. I suspect they got phone calls from the Republican Jewish Coalition. The ghost of uh, Sheldon Adelson uh, might have uh, uh, appeared in uh, one of Kevin McCarthy's dreams. It's hard to account for this, but nonetheless, it happened, and it was good that McCarthy and other members of the party, I should add, uh, uh, condemned Marjorie Taylor Greene. 
you know, I mean, she's sort of a hanging curveball for them. They can demonstrate <laughs> with no cost to themselves that they have some historical sense, integrity, and mental acuity by condemning uh, whatever nonsense she spouts uh, at, at really no political cost. So in, in a sense, in that sense, she's kind of a gift to them. Hey, I can demonstrate my manhood, finally, says Kevin McCarthy. I can, I can condemn this stuff. So happy ending for all these Republicans. Harold Meyerson on the hanging curveball, our sports reference for today, freedomatprospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always great to have you with us. Good to be here, John. <laughs> It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. There's a new biography of Edward Said. He died in 2003. In addition to being the leading American advocate for Palestinians and the author of Orientalism, one of the key scholarly books of the later 20th century, he was also classical music critic for The Nation and wrote about Palestine for the magazine. Adam Schatz was the nation's literary editor for much of that time. Now he's U.S. editor for the LRB, the London Review of Books. He also writes for the New York Review, the New York Times Magazine, the New Yorker, and other publications. He's also been a visiting professor at Bard and at NYU. We reached him today at home in Brooklyn. Adam Schatz, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. Well, this new biography is called Places of Mind. It's written by Timothy Brennan, and it gives us a chance to talk about Edward Said. He was born in Jerusalem in 1935. His parents were Palestinian Christians. He was an American citizen. You open your piece in the new LRB back in 1963, when a young Edward Said joined the English department at Columbia and people were spreading a rumor about him. What was the rumor? Uh, the rumor, John, was that he was a Jew from Alexandria. And what do you make of that? Well, it, it's, it's, it's certainly entertaining, and it's also amusing because, in a sense, as I suggest in this piece, he, he might as well have been a Jew from, from Alexandria. He, uh, he had grown up uh, mostly uh, in Cairo, uh, many of his uh, schoolmates were uh, Middle Eastern Jews. Uh, his uh, piano instructor, Ignaz Tigerman, a renowned uh, specialist in the Romantic repertoire who, who ran a school um, in, in Cairo, was a Polish Jewish refugee. So it's not as though the, the intellectual uh, culture of secular Judaism uh, was, was foreign to Said. This new biography was preceded by his own autobiography, he called it Out of Place. What did he see there about his family and his parents? Well, Saeed's uh, memoir, which I think is a, one of his finest books, is a very pained, agonized, uh, sometimes uh, excruciatingly uh, Freudian uh, depiction of a childhood that was at one and the same time a very privileged. He grew up in a, in a rather wealthy family, and uh, miserable. It was a very claustrophobic uh, family setting. His father was rather tyrannical, very cold. Um, at times, uh, he claimed used a cane with him. 
his mother, uh, Hilda, he described as the most intimate companion he had in his first 25 years. And uh, she was alternately uh, doting and withholding. And she regulated his life, regulated his moods, he says, um, and took a keen interest, of course, in his relationships with women in particular. And his parents, his father in particular, wanted him to get an American education. So they got him into a elite prep school. And then he went to Princeton in the 50s, a really conservative place during a conservative era. What was that like for him? Princeton was a very conservative school. But Saeed did manage, uh, I think, to find his, uh, his intellectual vocation there as a, as a literary critic. Uh, he developed uh, close relationships, friendships that would uh, last through much of his lifetime with uh, people like the future art critic uh, Michael Fried, and uh, and Said continued his uh, you know his work as a as a musician. In fact, uh, when he was at Princeton, he was still flirting with the idea of a career as a concert pianist. Eventually, of course, uh, he chose literature. He was a young faculty member at Columbia when the campus became a kind of a world center of anti-war action in 1967 and 68. And his politics also changed dramatically in 1967 and 68, but not because of Vietnam. He was certainly uh, sympathetic to the campaign against the war in Vietnam. He was not a supporter of the war in Vietnam. He had already developed fierce anti-imperialist convictions. But he was rather traditionalist in his view of the university as a safe haven and sanctuary for intellectual inquiry. And he uh, uh, did not appreciate it when students came to his class and uh, wanted to shut down the classroom. And he he threatened to call security. (laughs) Vietnam, I think, was a, a far less passionate concern to him than the emergence of the Palestinian guerrilla movement um, 1968 was was uh, a very important year um, in the struggle for Palestine. Uh, it was the time of the Battle of Karameh, which uh, was a, a battle by uh, Palestinian guerrillas, Fedayeen in Jordan against the invading Israeli army. Uh, the Palestinians lost that battle, but, but fought very bravely. And so a myth emerged around the Battle of Karameh, and that helped to propel uh, the PLO forward. Saeed made his first trip uh, to Jordan in 1969, and a year later, he met Yasser Arafat. 1967, the, 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 the Arab defeat by Israel, and then 68, the emergence of the Palestinian guerrilla movement, this was a critical time in the formation of his political consciousness. And then in 1978, after 20 years as a basically conventional English professor in terms of his academic work, he published Orientalism, which changed pretty much everything for him and and for the humanities. In The New Yorker, Pankaj Mishra calls Orientalism a book that launched a thousand academic careers. Why was that book so huge and important? Right, and, and that, and, and perhaps that's even an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> what Saeed did in that book was to argue that the the image um, that we have of the East, uh, he paid a special attention to the Middle East and to some extent to South Asia, was a construction of of an imperialist West. In fact, the the very production of Western knowledge about the societies of of the Middle East 
was geared towards furthering and consolidating a whole system of power and domination over these societies. Orientalism was misunderstood, of course. Edward was not an enemy of Western Civ. He always loved what we call the canon um, of great European writers. Well, the the book was, I think, um, taken to be a a kind of whole-scale denunciation of uh, Western uh, literature um, and culture and, and misread and misconstrued in those terms, both by the book's many detractors on the right, but also uh, by a, a number of people either on the left or in, in Islamist movements um, that looked with great suspicion on, uh, on Western, Western learning, Western intellectual traditions. The impact of a book is, of course, measured not only by the influence that it has, but on the number of misreadings that it inspires. Well, uh, at the time, I was one of those Marxist types whose critique of Orientalism was that if you're going to unmask Orientalism as an ideology, you need an analysis of the reality that it is concealing and distorting the actual relations, the real relations of dominance and resistance that exist in the Middle East. And Orientalism, of course, didn't do that. This was fairly conventional Orthodox Marxist objection. But this was the era when theory had become dominant in literary studies in the United States, especially French theory, starting with Foucault, who Edward was a champion of, and then Jacques Derrida, his deconstruction, you know, provoked the left with the, his doctrine of undecidability. The French literary theorists in America claimed to be engaging in a form of political action, a critique of domination, even though they wrote in a kind of private language that was mostly uh, read by grad students in comp lit. Edward eventually broke with theory, in quotes. Uh, what were his reasons? I mean, Orientalism, as you say, was, 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 was very indebted to French theory, but really especially to Foucault. He never had much interest in Derrida's work. And, and certainly the very fact that Orientalism omitted any discussion of the lived reality um, of the Middle East and focused on the Middle East as discursive formation was Foucauldian through and through. Yeah. But you also see in that book, especially in the last third of it, a shift from, from, from Foucault's vision of a discursive formation towards a more politically engaged um, analysis influenced by, on the one hand, Antonio Gramsci with his critique of hegemony, and on the other, by Noam Chomsky with his uh, uh, analysis of how consent is manufactured in otherwise democratic societies. And by the, I would say by the, the, the late 1970s, early 1980s, uh, Said's interests had shifted decisively towards figures like Noam Chomsky and also the British uh, art critic and essayist, uh, John Berger, who was very interested in how the oppressed and the subaltern uh, uh, resist and, and who um, believe that no um, system of oppression is ever entirely totalizing. There are always pockets of resistance, and the point of analysis is to identify what those points of resistance might be and to profit from them. And, and so Saeed very much moved in that direction. I think also um, what happened was that as Saeed became a more uh, renowned and public figure and became increasingly uh, comfortable with himself, 
he found that he could shake off some of the encumbrances of theoreticism and jargon and, and all the kind of academic stuff that, that I think for reasons of uh, power and prestige might've felt necessary to him at one point. He realized, no, he could write in a more colloquial style. He could write in a more direct fashion. And that's really, the, that's really um, how his um, uh, work uh, changed in those years. And you see that already in a book like The World, The Text um, and The Critic, um, in which he really announces his break with, with French theory and his turn towards a more political, quote-unquote, worldly criticism. So he became not just the voice of Palestine for Americans, but as you have mentioned, he became an advisor to Yasser Arafat and the PLO. He urged Arafat to negotiate a two-state solution, and then the Oslo Accords between Israel and the Palestinians were finally signed in 1993. How did that work out for Edward Said? Right. Well, I mean, Edward Said's career is 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 uh, is filled with uh, with paradoxes. Um, uh, like any good intellectual, um, <laughs> he uh, he became an advisor to Arafat around 1974 when he helped to draft Arafat's uh, November 74 address to the United Nations, and it was it was it was Edward Said who contributed um, the line about uh, not allowing uh, the olive branch to fall from my hand. He, at the time, was essentially a supporter of a two-state solution, which is uh, the position that he advocated in, in uh, the question of Palestine, um, which did not win him uh, many admirers among his Palestinian comrades um, at the time. He also expressed you know, reservations about the efficacy of armed struggle. He wasn't against armed struggle, per se. He wasn't a pacifist. But he believed that the Palestinian movement's strength lay in civil resistance and in the moral case of Palestine as a, as a human rights and anti-colonial issue. Um, the Palestinians were vastly out, outnumbered militarily. There was no way they could fight Israel. And so he believed that they had to focus on, on different methods um, of, of um, pressing their case. Now, by, 19, by the uh, late 1980s, early 1990s, uh, Said becomes increasingly disenchanted uh, with Arafat's rule for a number of reasons. Partly, it's the disaster of the Lebanese civil war and the PLO's involvement in that. Partly, it's the growing corruption of the PLO's uh, bureaucrats, which he observes close up um, in their uh, exile in Tunis. Partly, it is Arafat's decision to fully back Saddam Hussein in the Gulf War, which is a, a calamitous and forces the PLO to uh, negotiate prematurely because they had lost so much funding and all these Palestinians had been kicked out of Kuwait. And so by the time the Oslo Accords um, are signed in 1993, his, he has become increasingly frustrated with Arafat and he sees this agreement as a capitulation to Israel in which instead of defending Palestinian borders, uh, Palestinians will be defending Israeli security and essentially providing the, uh, the, providing the Israelis with the gendarme and not really realizing the project of Palestinian self-determination. So his position at that point begins to shift from two states to binationalism. And what was the response of the PLO to Edward Said's critique of Oslo? Well, the, the PLO never officially uh, responded to, to Said. However, um, at a certain point, uh, Said's books 
in Arabic, not in English, but his books in Arabic were banned in the Palestinian Authority, which essentially meant that unless you, you know, read English, you couldn't read Said's work, the work of the most important, un un undeniably the most important Palestinian intellectual of his time. The books were banned. A number of the people close to Edward came to have his view of Oslo. So I, I, th I do think he was quite prescient. But at the time, he was seen as a naysayer, certainly. And there were those who grumbled that, after all, Said had the luxury of high-handedly uh, denouncing the Oslo Accords because, after all, he had a nice apartment on the Upper West Side. He could go wherever he wanted to. He wasn't confined to the West Bank or the, or, uh, or the Gaza Strip. So there were those um, criticisms. Um, but I think today his position is viewed as quite a prescient one. And then he changed his position on, on Palestine and the Middle East. He gave up the fight for an independent Palestinian state, and he became one of the first advocates of a single binational secular democratic state that would guarantee equal rights to Jews and Arabs. That was huge, and that was pretty daring at the time, wasn't it? Well, he was one of a, of a, of a, of a number of people, I think, who, who adopted this view. Um, of course, later... Um, his his friend Tony Judd um, would make a splash in the New York Review of Books by essentially making uh, the same argument. It was it was bold, but I think what was remarkable about um, his defense of, of of binationalism, whether or not you agree about its uh, fe feasibility, were the terms in which he cast it, and they were the terms that really um, marked his criticism. Um, as an intellectual in his writings on everything from literature to freedom of speech. I mean, an emphasis on uh, equality, on dialogue, on coexistence, on, on having a place for different narratives that didn't necessarily fit, and an insistence on a kind of universal humanism. And all the time that he was speaking out for Palestine and reshaping post-colonial studies, he was playing the piano and he was writing about classical music, writing for you at The Nation. I remember that we brought him to UC Irvine, where I'm on the faculty, to give some endowed lectures in 1990. He had a grand piano set up in the lecture hall, and he talked about music in the writing of Adorno, Proust, and Benjamin, and then he played examples from Beethoven, Wagner, and Strauss. We loved it. He loved doing it. Let's talk about Edward as a musician and as a music critic. I think that there's a tendency to see Edward's love of music and his writings on music as a, a kind of dandyish uh, pastime, separate from his writings on, on, on literature, on culture, uh, on politics, separate, to be sure, from his advocacy of the Palestinian cause. But in my view, these are all interwoven. And he was very fond of Goethe's remark that art is about a voyage uh, to the other. And I think this is really how he understood um, music. I think this is why he um, named the music ensemble for Arab and Israeli you know, youth musicians, the youth orchestra, the West East Devon Orchestra, which was a tribute to, um, to Goethe's West East Devon, a collection of poems uh, uh, inspired um, by, uh, by Hafez, the Persian poet. Music was also a great passion for, for Edward 
uh, because it was a kind of um, artistic expression of what he called counterpoint. He loved counterpoint in intellectual argument. He loved it in music. This is one of the reasons why he was uh, obsessed with Glenn Gould. He went to every Glenn Gould concert uh, that he could when he was a graduate student uh, at Harvard. Uh, he wrote one of his most memorable essays uh, on Gould, Glenn Gould, uh, as intellectual. Music for Edward uh, was not simply a matter of enjoyment, not simply a matter of aesthetic beauty. It was also a way of thinking. And I think that music permeates his writing practice. You, you cannot separate Said's writing from his music. The two really go hand in hand. And one of the most fascinating aspects of Said's career is the turn in his last years to a concept that he discovered uh, in Adorno, the concept uh, of late style. Adorno had theorized that in uh, Beethoven's late sonatas, late quartets, Beethoven was creating music that was not an expression of kind of serene wisdom. It was not a summing up. There was nothing graceful about it. It was an explosion. It was, a, these were works of difficulty. They were sometimes works of, of intense fragmentation, of daring dissonances. He called them the catastrophes of music. And Said was very much drawn to this idea of late style because I think it also spoke to his experience as a Palestinian intellectual who had broken with the mainstream of the Palestinian movement and who had who essentially decided I would prefer the dissonance and difficulty of my life living apart from the movement that I've devoted myself to for three decades than accept this false piece of Oslo. His writing was his late style. His late style was his way of being a Palestinian intellectual and being a man in the world. Adam Schatz is the nation's former literary editor. He wrote about Edward Said for the London Review of Books. Thank you, Adam. This was great. Thanks so much, John. It was a pleasure talking to you. Same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk about what's on TV, and for that we turn, of course, to Ella Taylor, longtime critic and writer for the LA Weekly, NPR.org, and many other places. We reached her today, as usual, at home in Santa Monica. Hi, Ella. Hi, John. Well, this week was Bob Dylan's 80th birthday. We celebrated by watching Don't Look Back, the wonderful 1967 documentary by D.A. Pennybaker, uh, streaming now pretty much everywhere. It's about his 1965 tour of England when he was 24. I hadn't watched it for many years. What about you? I had not watched it for more years than I care to count, but uh, anybody can see it now. If you have a subscription to HBO Max, Hulu or Amazon, you can see it for free. <laughs> Otherwise, tons of VOD uh, channels, there's no problem with getting to see it. It also reposes uh, in the Smithsonian in the National Film Registry, which of course is a great honor to, to any film. 
And as you say, it was so much fun to to watch it again, especially with hindsight and and with you know what's been added by Bob Dylan in the what is it 50 60 years since then 50 years because he has a very different look and a very different persona <laughs> now <laughs> well this is the film that begins with the now iconic sort of music video of Subterranean Homesick Blues, that's the song that begins Johnny's in the basement mixing up the medicine, which has always had a special meaning to me, I have to say. The song is this torrent of amazing images and rhymes, and uh, Bob stands in an alley holding up big cards with selected words from the lyrics, dropping them in time with the soundtrack. I thought it was thrilling and totally fun to watch even now, you know, 55 years later. Penny Baker says it was Bob's own idea. I'm sure it was. He liked to exert a great deal of control over his his image and his his reception, but it also shows that Penny Baker was not all verite. This is yes. a very stylized beginning, and of course you can see Alan... Ginsburg lurking in the background, chatting to somebody who may or may not have been William Burroughs, I'm not sure, um, or maybe it was just some guy that he met at the dustbins, <laughs> or the trash cans. But uh, Penny Baker has always practiced his own version of verite, and I think that the most stunning thing about it, there are many, he does use a handheld camera like a lot of uh, documentary filmmakers, but his focus is always behind the scenes, which I think is absolutely marvelous. That's what makes his documentaries so um, singular. Um, and that's where the fuller picture especially lies in regard to people who are celebrities, because either they've crafted their image very carefully or their manager, um, in this case, the sphinx-like Albert Brothman, <laughs> who looks disconcertingly like Steve Bannon, uh, oh, with even worse hair, <laughs> but is, uh, you know, was widely acknowledged to be a very wily operator uh, and a very quiet one. You know, there's actually not very much concert footage in this movie, and what there is is mostly shot from behind including one really iconic moment where, where, where Bob begins a concert with um, no sound. <laughs> and they're desperately trying to fix it in the, in the background. But as with marriage and parenting, behind the scenes brings out all our capacities, good and bad. And uh, we see them all here, or I hope that's all, because <laughs> otherwise he must have been totally impossible. <laughs> Let me start just for a minute before we move to the behind the scenes with with the music, because the music is wonderful. He opens every concert with come mothers and fathers throughout the land and don't criticize what you can't understand, words to live by. We hear him do this, I don't know, half a dozen times in all the performances. He's solo with his acoustic guitar and harmonica. He sings The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll, Gates of Eden, Don't Think Twice. And he also sings in his hotel room. This is part of the backstage thing, a beautiful version of It's All Over Now, Baby Blue. So that is wonderful. But as you say, the heart of this film is the backstage story. Yes, and, and um, you know, I think the times they are changing is the one that's most often repeated in the film. And this is, after all, 1967. The film is made about his 1965 
um, tour of the UK, uh, which I remember, I think I must have been about 14 at the time. And all I remember was that he charged impossibly high prices. <laughs> Albert Grossman. Let's blame Albert Grossman for that. Yeah, well, I, I have a feeling with, with Bob's entire, um, yes. you know, and uh, was a huge hit. I read a very interesting piece by Louis Menand, in the, which he wrote in, I think, 2006, something like that, about about the music, it was primarily. Uh, and he points out that that um, far from being a total original, Dylan actually modeled himself on two well-known, uh, very well-known folk and uh, revival uh, singers, Led Belly and Woody Guthrie. I think Columbia Records landed him on a much bigger landscape uh, and so did his astonishing look you know he looked like a sort of uncombed seraph Uh, and we do see in the movie that he's actually very careful about his appearance we see him grooming himself a number of times fluffing up those uh, unkempt curls and and so on not to particularly say that he was vain but uh he he cultivated a, a certain image. And he always is dressed in a very hip style. Very, always right from the beginning, which I had not remembered until I see this, this very uh, trendy leather jacket and he's dressed all in black. And then gradually the sunglasses come out, as you'd <laughs> expect. And there were, of course, lo- lots of imitations. But he cultivated that sandpaper voice largely from, from Woody Guthrie. Um, and speaking of, of Lead Belly, they, I remember from uh, the 1980s when the American music critic who was based in London, Stanley Reynolds, who was not a fan of Bob, thought his, his, wor- his lyrics were much too poetic and romantic. And he ends the piece by saying, when it rained on Lead Belly, he just got wet. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, you know, over the years, I've begun to disagree more and more with that, that judgment because you know, the words have become, they always were pretty sophisticated, but now, you know, he's become a kind of public intellectual, really, as he approaches 80. At the time, um, you know, what's most amusing and and unsettling is his encounters with the British press. Yes. Which ranged from, uh, from the combative to the playful to the downright abusive. I mean, there's one infamous scene that people who've seen the movie may remember in which he's supposedly being interviewed by the... Time magazine arts and science critic who was based in London and he absolutely trounces him. I mean, the, the guy hardly says a word. It's all Bob Dylan telling him what's wrong with his magazine and his writing and and uh, so on. And you don't exactly get to find out why, but it, either he got a bad review from them or he's just in a terrible mood and needed a victim. We do see there's sort of a crescendo where the press is ignorant and presumptuous and irritating and eventually pretty infuriating. And he starts out kind of in a good mood. They ask these incredibly stupid questions. You seem angry. And he he says, I'm not angry. I'm delightful. That's at the beginning in his first press conference. But they keep asking him things like, what are you really trying to say? And do you think your fans understand you? And he just gets more and more irritated. And finally, he really lets the Time Magazine guy uh, have it. And yes, you're right. We're not quite sure why it's this guy. But 
we become he enjoys sparring with them at first and then he gets more and more angry and irritated and, and but he doesn't give it up he holds on to it like a the proverbial dog with a bone yes and i think that's partly control issues partly because as you say they ask very um, fatuous questions and also because note from your quote he doesn't say i'm delighted he says i'm delightful yes yes <laughs> which is a little bit different he's really quite cruel towards donovan who was on the bill with him in his manchester concert and upstages him and one thing that i noticed about it which i didn't last time which was again a long time ago is that there is a possibly unintended gender subtext to the mo- to the movie oh yes this was surely intended but almost every shot backstage of him uh, or him practicing you know um with others there is a young woman smoking and looking very passive seated right next to him who is either a groupie or she's someone who works there or whatever but never opens their mouths and she's also got she also reminded me they've all got flick ups from which i had in 1967 <laughs> as well which is that you put your hair in rollers i believe you call them curlers here and sleep on those horrible things overnight and in the morning your hair flips up i thought very attractively but <laughs> i'm sure you're right oh i'm sure However, there is also Joan Baez to be reckoned yeah. with. And yes. She, and, and that's much more ambiguous and ambivalent, I think, because we know a great deal more, about it, sadly, about their relationship now than we did then. But we also see a scene where she sings the entire turn, turn, turn again. And she, let's remember, she became a star before he did. Well before, and a su- world superstar when he was a kid playing at folk clubs in Cambridge. And it's just lovely, but he's typing away at the, <laughs> the typewriter. When there are other people performing, he's almost always doing something else. So he's not a man who's easy with the compliments. We also see her rather charmingly clowning around. I mean, she was very beautiful then. She still is. I went to a concert on Santa Monica Pier a couple of years back where she sang and she's absolutely marvelous but she's clowning around and you almost get the sense that she wants to be part of the vibe with the boys but they don't seem to be paying her a great deal of attention yeah i think i think that's right i mean it is wonderful to see her and she has this sublime and gorgeous voice in 1965 and is such a sweet presence compared to all these testosterone craze guys in the entourage. She sings in the hotel room. She also sings Love is Just a Four-Letter Word, which is Bob's song. And it's just beautiful. You know, at the end, she says, oh, Bobby, it's so nice. And she's referring to the fact that the entourage has departed and it's not a crazy circus. It's just the two of them singing together. And we sort of feel the same way, like, yeah, thank God those guys are gone. But, you know, at the time, Bob's world was the entourage, the macho joking around, drinking, and uh, not paying too much attention to Joan, who disappears somewhat mysteriously. There's never any explanation of, hey, what happened to Joan Baez? She's not in this film anymore. Either she was there and and Penny Baker had the material that he wanted or she went back home because she had her own uh, 
business to attend to. She has since been much more forthcoming about his poor treatment of her, that's for sure. And uh, we know a great deal more about about his treatment of his longtime girlfriend uh, and other women. Of course, this is not unusual in that world. And I think that the you know the question still remains of how and why he became the voice of a generation. Now, there's a British journalist who, as you say, asks a totally stupid question is, do you think most anybody really understands what you're saying in your song? Which is such a hostile way to clout a, a question. That I'm surprised he didn't just clout her <laughs> over the head. Um, but uh, Louis Menand in his article said that he didn't think it had much to do with the words at all but rather with the sound of his music, which felt so new to people who had never heard of Woody Guthrie or, or uh, Lead Belly. I don't think it was just that. I mean, it's clear that um, he was speaking to an audience which was being schooled in the language and the actions of protest. Yes. Um, there's a lovely scene where he's, back, he's in the States uh, and he's singing at a civil rights protests that are surrounded by by black people i don't think they were his primary audience by by any means it was uh, you and me you know <laughs> the the folk revival types of the yes. of the late 60s uh, but nonetheless i mean he did have a very political or a very political voice or voice says uh, but he was also an artist so he was never an on the nose singer. He was a writer and a poet and and uh, a singer first and foremost, more than anything else. He hated to be called a folk singer. When anybody said, you know, did you do you count yourself a folk singer? He said, oh no. To celebrate Bob Dylan's 80th birthday this week, we recommend watching Don't Look Back, the documentary by D.A. Pennybaker of an acoustic Bob Dylan touring England solo in 1965. We are told that in 2014, the authoritative British Film Institute poll of critics ranked Don't Look Back as one of the 10 best documentaries of all time. Streaming now at all the usual places. Now it's time for something completely different. Can you recommend one more this week? I can. Um, it's this is not a happy film, but it's a very good one. It's called Final Account, and it's playing um, at the AMC Seven in Santa Monica, um, the Town Center Five, uh, and also a bunch of uh, suburban AMCs for now. Uh, but uh, and I suppose they will decide later in the summer uh, whether it, it it will appear on VOD as well. It's made by uh, the distributor is the very good participant productions that do, you know, social issue type movies. It's a documentary that was made by the British filmmaker Luke Holland and his own history is relevant here. This is a film about um, ordinary Germans who either participated in or were witnesses to the Third Reich and that he managed to actually get to talk to him. They were they started making the movie in 2008, and by that time they were already pretty elderly, I'm assuming a lot of them are now, now gone. Um, that's a very hard thing to do, but Luke Holland 
like a bunch of other British arty types, notably Christopher Hitchens and Stephen Frears, did not know that he was Jewish until his 20s. He came from an intellectual family, but uh, found out almost by accident he's Jewish and his grandparents were both murdered um, by the Nazis. And so he's long been, been preoccupied with this issue. And over time he came to want to not to interview the survivors, which has been done so many times, including by the Shoah Foundation and so on, but to people, ordinary non-Jewish Germans uh, who were part of the machine or they were civilian witnesses uh, during the period. And you'd think that that would be very hard to get people to talk. It may have been very hard to get them to talk, but once they, they start, they cannot shut up, <laughs> which of course is marvelous for this documentary. And he's quite challenging. Um, most of them were uh, in the Hitler Jugend, the Hitler Youth, which apparently was a load of fun. And I'm not being ironic here because the, you know, the Hitler Youth was run like summer camps. There were lots and lots of fun things to do and singing and dancing and and so on and so forth. So they became very enthusiastic. Um, many of them were then fun funneled into the Waffen SS. Um, there are camp guards in the being interviewed here uh, and civilians, and they really take us through the period leading up to the Third Reich from um, Kristallnacht to conditions in the camps, and then just what people saw, civilians saw on the street that they were forbidden to buy from Jewish stores and so on and so forth. The result is this completely fascinating, jaw-dropping <laughs> account, in part because of the differences in their responses. Some are defensive, as you can imagine, because they are now, you know, they've lived out their lives in disgrace, most of them. Some of them are in complete denial uh, and they have this rather impassive, unsettlingly impassive looks on their faces. Um, they all found ways not to know what they knew. Most of the civilians say you couldn't not know what was going on. It was much too apparent. One man, well, there are a number who are very remorseful uh, and have lived with this for the rest of their lives. It's a little bit like blind spot Hitler's secretary. I don't know if you saw that uh, documentary also about Hitler's secretary who was completely destroyed by uh, what she had done. Um, there's one guy who's so remorseful that he is spending his old, he was at the Wannsee conference, which was where the final solution was laid out in detail, created in detail. And today he spends his time speaking to young Germans about the perils of Nazism and the need to guard against the repetition. Of course, now is a particularly timely a period in which to to release this film because of the increase in anti-Semitism all over the world and certainly in the United States, which in my experience has been one of the most comfortable place for Jewish people to live, certainly much more than my native England. And uh, then there is one guy who's a totally frightening little old man who shows total lack of remorse he seems to live in some world of his own. He says, actually says, I, I noted it down, Hitler didn't bother me. 
<laughs> and the off-screen interviewer, I assume it's Luke Holland, just lets that hang in the air. He doesn't comment because he follows up with, I suppose legally it was a crime. And uh, he has a kind of defiant, open anti-Semitism that he sees as justifying um, his participation. He was a highly placed official who has very detailed memories of the time. It really throws you. But the movie as a whole, the documentary as a whole, raises an, an intractable question, as did the Hitler's secretary uh, documentary, is what would we do? Assuming we were not Jewish and that, uh, you know, this stuff was as plain as could be in the streets as well as in the camps and, and uh, other places. And I remember recently, I think it was the historian Anne Applebaum, but also David Frum, two commentators, both of them quite conservative, but that's not relevant here, who both of whom said, you don't want to lose, none of us wants to lose our lives, none of us wants to be killed. But the important thing under totalitarian dictatorship is do not collaborate. And that was what was missing here that so many in fact did whether passively or, or actively collaborate with, with the system. And, and that's a very worrying thought given um, anti-Asian uh, hate acts at the moment, anti-Semitism, anti-Muslim. We are living with a kind of atmosphere where that question really raises itself again and again and again. The film is Final Account. It's playing now at theaters around L.A. Ella Taylor is our film and TV critic. Ella, thanks for talking with us today. Definitely my pleasure, John. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rai Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Oh,